south of Texas, history has its place. On the other side of Texas, justice rules the case. They don't like it, they don't love it. They say we're all wrong, but on the other side of Texas halls, we roll along. And we do roll along, broadcasting from the Racer Car Wash Studios. I'm your host, Jay West, Texas Leeson, playing through the pain. I'm uh, I'm playing through the the flu, flu-like symptoms to be here with you right here on the other side. A little nauseous at times, seeing two and three and four of the same things at a time, but uh, it's that time of year, and glad to be here. Wouldn't miss it right here in the Racer Car Wash Studios, Lubbock's best wash for five years running stop into one of five convenient locations across hub city for the best wash around guaranteed check them out in your best location there at racerwash.com the show ahead is a good show ahead christopher collins from the texas observer writing a piece that piqued a lot of interest across the state there are communities rural communities that are resurging in there there's a resurgence in their population and it's due to immigration that conversation with christopher collins coming up about 10 minutes from now and then we've got travis tolly of mullen horden brown with some sound legal advice i know a big demographic that listens to this show is 35 to 55 uh, you may not know what you need to have to be legally protected travis tolly will be in to talk to us about that especially on the will side you done your will anything could happen man it could all just end pretty quickly uh this is where i'm going to start though i want to submit to you this bold prediction are you ready for a bold prediction here on the other side this is my bold prediction i'm not asking you to go wager a bunch of money on it but i do have a take it to the bank ladies and gentlemen cliff kingsbury will be one of the greatest of all time in the nfl he will be one of the greatest of all time in the nfl and you mark that down on this date when i brought it to you here january 17 the year of our lord 2019 cliff kingsbury is going to be a goat in the nfl now I did an interview about this with the, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Texas Standard. It's a good, uh, nationally, nationally, if Texas is a nation, it's a statewide program. They contacted me about this, but I thought I would bring it up now to tell you why I think that Cliff Kingsbury has the pedigree. Look away from the record. Look away from the record and look to something that matters more and it's the evidence of what you're seeing play out on the field now and i'll begin with this i don't know and i don't mean to dismiss andy reed head coach of the kansas city chiefs i don't know what the ratings are for the chiefs in lubbock but i bet they rival the numbers of the cowboys with people who tune into those games That started somewhere, that niche that recruited 
a Patrick Mahomes and knew that Patrick Mahomes and some of this predates Cliff Kingsbury. I get it. But uh, Neil Brown, an air raid offense in Lubbock. There's somebody who knows a thing or two about the way that the NFL's trending, and it's Cliff Kingsbury. Now, Kingsbury, of course, worked his way into the NFL and played with a guy, and that guy's name was um, Bill uh, Bill Belichick. That's who. And backed up Tom Brady. He knows a guy named Danny Amendola, another guy named Wes Welker, several others. Um he has connection with but also just part of that Mike Leach coaching tree that coaching tree that's beginning to dominate the NFL now Baker Mayfield had his choice of where he wanted to walk on he chose Texas Tech for a reason Uh, Patrick Mahomes there's a new excitement that's offsetting all of the hullabaloo in the NFL right now and it is that Mayfield that I've put Mahomes above Mayfield for sure. But what Mayfield, you can't just flinch at what he did in Cleveland this year. It is impressive. Patrick Mahomes, our Mahomes signed helmet, arrived at the lease in Ponderosa today. The boys all wanted to put it on and run around and said, nobody is putting the helmet on. We won it at a bidding auction after the game. The Texas Tech basketball game last Saturday, and the boys were really excited to have it arrive. Uh, This is his MVP season. Nobody's wearing this. And mark my words, within the next nine months, it will be in the backyard, in the toy bin. And I will be ashamed at the price I paid for it. But it'll be there with a Bob Knight signed basketball that's worn out, the Mike Leach football that's worn out. It'll be there in the ash heaps of Leeson childhood history. Um, But, excuse my voice, again, playing through the pain here on the other side with you. But here's my deal, is that Steve Keim, and I believe that's how he pronounced his last name, K-E-I-M, he recruited one Sean McVay when McVay was with the Washington Redskins. And then... You know, fast forward, he thought that he could land McVay, but his coach there in Arizona stayed another year, and then McVay wound up going to the L.A. Rams. Now, McVay, a lot in the vein, uh, Kingsbury and McVay, uh, revolutionaries in how they see the game, like the, I mean, they are the 49ers of the 1990s in the 2018s, the Bill Waltons. Is it Bill Walton? Fact check that for me. But anyway, Steve Kime had McVeigh in his sights, and it's the same Steve Kime who went out and got Cliff Kingsbury. Arizona struggled this year, 3-13. and Now they have the number one overall pick in the draft, and that becomes a matter of will they take Kyler Murray of OU, this is your sports edition of Other Side of Texas, or will they stick with Josh Rosen and let Kingsbury coach him up, which he's been able to prove. Now, the question becomes, it's this question of, well, he did poorly at Texas Tech, poorly enough to effectively get fired, but let's compare apples and oranges, shall we? 
a college football coach must produce a management of the overall program of the business as it were and then the playbook on the field and Cliff Kingsbury certainly I would not argue with those who say that he struggled with that he certainly did and I don't I don't I don't take it upon anybody to manage that kind of program to be essentially an athletic director without the title and then have to manage a hundred young men and what they choose to do on the weekends uh, as well the hundred or so young men who you've you've recruited but in the NFL there are executives who get paid to manage the organization and who do the recruiting your only job is to implement the playbook and to make sure that the playbook's being executed on a week-to-week basis oh and by the way you get a lot more money i think in that environment cliff kingsbury and we'll hear a minute or two from him here uh, i think he will thrive not just survive but will thrive in the NFL, here's some comments he made in his introductory press conference. Thank you, Michael, and I'd like to thank the Bidwell family as well, and, and Steve Kime, uh, and the entire Cardinals organization for this incredible opportunity. Um, even though I grew up in Texas, um, I actually became a Cardinals fan in high school when they drafted Jake Plummer. I was a big Jake Plummer fan. Um, the way he played, his style of play, and then it rolled right into Kurt Warner. Uh, what an incredible story he was, the type of man he was, what he gave back to this community, and is still giving. Uh, and then came Carson Palmer, who I actually got to know in the Senior Bowl, who I think the world of, the run he had um, here was fantastic and followed that closely. And then, of course, Pat Tillman, uh, what a legendary name. My father, who's I mean, here today what a with great my brother interview. and uh, my agent and his wife, so thank you all for coming. But my father was a uh, former Marine and uh, Purple Heart recipient, and so we've always had a great appreciation mm-hmm. of the military in our family. And to uh, learn the legend of, of Pat Tillman to hear that story has always been very inspiring in my life. Uh, and then the, the current roster with Larry Fitzgerald. Um, as a coach, what a great role model for me to be able to tell my college players, hey, this is the guy that does it right all the time, on and off the field, the way he handles himself. See, I wanted to play that intro for you because it's not just a matter of of Cliff meeting the X's and O's. You see all the spots he's hitting on the board, resonating with the people, and this is the people's club, and Pat Tillman, and Larry Fitzgerald, and going through even Carson Palmer. He's going to be a GOAT. You mark my words. He's going to be a GOAT. And if you hate what I have to say, it's Jay at Other Side of Texas. You can text in the program, 806-745-5800. But I think that Cliff Kingsbury will be a GOAT. we got Christopher Collins coming up. Interview with him about the resurgence of rural communities. Stick right with us. Big program ahead. Glad you're with us here on the other Across side. That old red river, this is what I saw. I saw miles, miles of Texas. All the stars up in the sky. I saw miles and miles of Texas. Gonna live here till I die. Did an interview with Christopher Collins, Texas Observer. He covers rural issues with the Texas Observer. 
and was glad to have his inaugural debut on the program. This is how the interview went. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, we hear a lot about rural decline, rural Texas decline. Redistricting here in a couple of sessions is going to center around decline in certain places, growth in other places. But in some rural panhandle communities, they're not shrinking. In fact, they're growing. Uh, Christopher Collins with the Texas Observer done a piece about this about January 3 it's made the rounds and I've seen it pop up several times so it would be a good time to have them on the program Christopher how are you I'm good Jay how about yourself we are rolling along buddy as we do let's talk about uh, some places in which you went and saw what got you thinking about the story let's start there yeah, so the Center for American Progress, they had compiled census data and done a lot of crunching on those numbers and released a report um, at some point last year that examined the, the demographics in a really granular way um, in communities across the nation. It wasn't just a Texas-centric report, um, but I, I got a hold of some of, the, um, some of the data and spreadsheets and things they used in that report and saw what I thought was a pretty interesting trend, which was that um, in some rural communities, especially up towards the top of the Panhandle and into the Oklahoma Panhandle, um, and then then into Kansas also, there were communities, smaller towns, whose who had lost population on the the Anglo side, generally the native side, but generally generally lost Anglo population. However, their populations had risen actually since 1990 because of a uh, growth in the immigrant population and um, I, it just made me curious you know um, these aren't towns that are dying and shrinking these are actually towns that are getting bigger and it's due to immigrants you know I, I want to know what that looks like you know what what does that mean for a community how, how did they get transformed um, because of that yeah which sets you off on a course and you start off in Dalhart tell us what's going on in Dalhart and I was really, I was really surprised about Delhart. Um, I went up there with one of my colleagues, um, Gus Bova, who writes about immigration for the Observer, um, and is also fluent in Spanish, which was really important for this story. Um, we went up there, and it is just not what people think of as some archetypal rural Texas town, like this sleepy little place, you know, where not much is happening. Um, this place is just a buzz with activity. I mean, there's traffic. At least, e- even you know, at midnight or 1 a.m., there's still trucks on the road. There's cows being hauled. Um, the gas station's open 24/7. You know, the Toot and Totem you guys have up there in the Panhandle, and there is just a lot going on. It, it's it, as far as I can tell, it's it's a prosperous, really colorful, busy place. And um, I, I found that really surprising. Actually, it's not what I thought was gonna was gonna happen. Yeah, for listeners, especially in the immediate area, Dalhart, up in the northwestern part of the Panhandle, crossroads of Highway 54, 385, 87, a busy place nonetheless, but a buzz with activity. And when is it most a buzz, Christopher Collins? Well, well, when we were there. Um, you know, there was, during the day, you know, there's there's traffic, a lot of which is agricultural, 
or uh, industrial um, cattle trailers, um, semis, that type of deal in the daytime. But we actually um, started this story with a bit of a um, activity at nighttime. Gus and I, we went out to the uh, the potato furrows of Larson Farms and uh, trailed some immigrant workers, talked to them about the job, and saw the type of work that they do. Um, so even at, you know, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., you know, there's trucks going everywhere. There's all this activity, um, you know, thousands and thousands of millions of potatoes being harvested. Um, so day or night, you know, there's there's stuff happening. Um, and it's thanks to those, it's thanks to a, a really, <clears throat> a, a really good and really strong agricultural economy that they have up there. Yeah. <clears throat> and potatoes, of course, are fragile, can't be harvested during the day, so they're doing a lot of that at night. That's what we were told by yeah. the potato experts. I didn't do any potato research, you know, <laughs> before heading up to Delhart. I did not know. <laughs> I didn't know that's a crop we were going to, going to encounter. Well, but we did, yeah, and I apparently think, it's a huge industry up there. Yeah, I think different farms have different ropes, but uh, that seemed to be what uh, Larson Farms was following there. So you go out to, you see this in uh, rural Dalhart, and then where else do you go? You know, that's really that's really about the only place that we went. Okay. Um, we did see we did see those population changes reflected, um, you know, in other towns just because of that census data. Um, that that's really that's really where we went. Um, I in the story I pulled in a few other examples of some reporting I had done of rural towns that are dying. Um, yeah. But but right, this is basically focused on <clears throat> Delhart. But I think I think it stands to reason, and from some of the other interviews I did with county judges and other area officials and experts, um, this is probably pretty close to what's going to be happening in some other towns, um, such as Sunray, Dumas, um, I believe Hartley was one of those that had lost native population, but had actually um, gained population because of because of uh, immigrants coming to the area to live. Um, so it's happening in, in kind of a belt across the north, the very top part of the panhandle. Yeah, this uh, resurgence then of population. Right, yeah, that's the way to put it. So how does that then, what kind of other problems, I mean, economic speaking, it probably bodes well or does it bode well? What are some other, uh, this hasn't just started, it's been happening, so as you talked with people, what was their reaction on change in tone for better for lack of better words of their place you know i guess it depends on who you ask really um <clears throat> the the mayor in delhart um uh, he he's very he's very happy about the changes that are happening you're right it has been happening for a while this isn't just this isn't just now happening um but but he's he's very pleased because um you know as immigrants come uh, they can fill those those spots for labor that are needed, whether that's at the dairies, whether that's at the farms, um, driving truck to take goods from one place to the other, um, and, and of course that economy can't function without workers. Um, so he he's very happy. Um, other people with the city are happy. Um, the the immigrants appear to be happy to be there. Um, you know, it's they're, they're making compared to what they could get elsewhere. 
a good wage. Are these um, are these more yeah. migrant oriented immigrants? Where what countries are they seeing the most immigration from? Right. So many of them are from Mexico and from Guatemala. However, interestingly, there's a, apparently also a sizable population of South African immigrants. Um, I'm not exactly sure why, <laughs> but they're there um, for the most part, though, Mexico and Central America. And a lot of that, I think, is due to the feds placing people in Amarillo, uh, in on the north side of Amarillo, especially with I-40. Um, there's a, a, an enormous, and I believe you guys have written about this before, an enormous immigrant uh, community in Amarillo. Oh, I, um, I, I take your word for it. No, I. Um, so maybe some growth out from Amarillo into more rural areas on the South African front. It's certainly possible. I mean, I, I know that um, you know here where I live in Abilene, you know, and, and in other um, cities that aren't the biggest cities in Texas, but also not small, um, probably have a lot more immigrants living in them than people know. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't doubt it. I wouldn't doubt it at all that there's uh, at least some relationship there between what's happening in Amarillo and what's happening a little farther north. Yeah. What uh, Christopher Collins with the Texas Observer with us here. Uh, the title of the piece is "These Rural Panhandle Towns Should Be Shrinking," that thanks to immigrants they're booming. A couple of other takeaways that you had here in the story, Christopher. Hmm. Well, you know, I think I think one of the most important things, one of the maybe maybe the most interesting thing to look at here, are, are the politics, of, uh, in, in the context around the politics here. Um, you know, as you've written about in the past, the Panhandle is possibly one of the most interesting areas politically, at least as far as Republicans are concerned, because this is one of, along with West Texas. Um, parts of West Texas. This is one of the only areas that is really resisting um, very hardline, far right, you know, movement of the Republican Party. This is where we still have moderate Republicans. You know, we still have, um, or relatively moderate. You know, we have, we have Kim King, we have Ford Price, Gail Seliger, um, people like that. At the same time, and I think that they they would let me just interject. They would say that they're conservative, that they reflect their constituencies. But, you know, it, it's like, this is a story I always tell Christopher. I, and it was in Colorado. We were at a pass. My wife needed to make a call, so we found a place for her to get out and use her phone. There was an elderly couple that was there, and it was right in the middle of the 16 elections. And I'm sorry for this long interjection, but it's just a good story. No, you're fine. Um, fine. She says, there's an older couple there, and they're trying to take a selfie. I said, well, could I take a selfie? Could I take a picture of you? And they said, sure. And I said, where are you from? And they said, oh, we're from Amarillo, and we're just headed back. And I said, oh, that's great. Uh, you guys have some great representation there in Amarillo. And she said, yes, we do. And I said, uh, you know, that Kel Seliger race is going to be pretty interesting. And she looked at her husband and looked back at me and said, we're, we're okay with Kel um, because he's for public education, <laughs> right? Well, that's exactly what I was. That's a, that's exactly what I was about to say. I think you're right in that they would argue they actually aren't moderate; that they're that they're pretty conservative. Um, and I think that 
they're right to a degree on that. I think they're relatively moderate. Um, you know, Kel Seliger is, is the only one to defy Dan Patrick on vouchers. Um, you know, it, Ken King has been pretty pragmatic on uh, on education. Poor price is great on health care, really. Um, and so I, I think that's interesting when you combine that with the component of these are also counties that go very heavily uh, for Donald Trump, very heavily for Ted Cruz, um, who are anti-immigrant. But then we have this very welcoming atmosphere in Delhart of the immigrants coming, of them doing these jobs that, that need to be done for the economy to thrive. And everybody, for the most part, is pretty cool with it. Um, and and so squaring those different kind of shifting phases of the ideology and trying to figure out where that's coming from and, and where it goes, I guess, is is one of the main takeaways. It's a very interesting political kind of mixture happening there, mixture of ideologies and things. Yeah. Um, and maybe somebody like you would be better would be better able to explain exactly why that's happening. But I think that's one of the main takeaways here. Well that's kind of use a suggest, Christopher. Um I can blow hard on that later, but what I would, <laughs> I mean, for me, what I've found in conversations, emails, calls that I get, our dairies are on the front line here of uh, mm -hmm. the immigration discussion on, you know, I, I was talking with a dairy owner um, at an event that just happened to be in La Mesa, and uh, he said that he had to confront the the agriculture commissioner of texas and mm -hmm. tell him right. to please stop it with the rhetoric because his he needed that labor force for his dairy like a lot of dairies do exactly and they need it uh 24 7 year round too the nine month visas don't work too well for them yeah yeah well <laughs> uh, anything else you got for us christopher you know, I, I think that's about it. I, I would really love it if people could, could get online and um, and read the story on TexasObserver.org. Mm -hmm. um, give their thoughts. Send an email. Um, I, I think I think there's something really interesting happening up there at, at the top of the panhandle. It's a place that not many people see and, unfortunately, not enough people care about. Um but I think it's I think it's really important and it's worth paying attention to. When you did talk to them about the election, the U.S. Senate campaign, Ben O'Rourke, Ted Cruz, um, did you get any caveats in that? Did you get well, I was with O'Rourke, but or I was with Cruz, but like but you know, along it, the immigration lines? Uh, I didn't. I don't feel like. I don't feel like Beto had much name recognition up there. You know, it was pretty much a foregone conclusion that that it was going to go to Cruz, and the the nuances of Im immigration policy, I guess, just didn't really come up. Um, you know, we did talk to a a local guy there, a, a, an elderly man who runs a boot shop downtown, and he's mm -hmm. uh, very very pro Trump and. Uh, very, um, you know, for for limiting immigration. Sonny um, Dawkins, <laughs> right, right, right. The the bootmaker and um, what was kind enough to have us in his shop and to show us the various leathers and, and the boots that he makes. 
Um, and, and he's, I guess, part of maybe the, the old school of, of the Panhandle Republicans. Um, and that was just another kind of political perspective that's held up there. But I, there definitely are nuances, and it just depends on who you ask. You know, it's, I think a lot of people want to put rural Texas and the people who are in rural Texas as believing one thing and, and accepting only one ideology and it being really homogenous. But that's just not the case. Yeah. You know, the, these are all individual people with individual feelings, and though they might agree on some things or a lot of things, there's um, definitely definitely points of disagreement to dig into. Yeah. Well, Christopher, we appreciate you taking time. Again, the name of the piece is These Rural Panhandle Towns Should Be Shrinking, But Thanks to Immigrants, They're Booming. It's there at Texas Observer. And, Christopher, I'll say this. Lots of times people will say something like, well, that's what Christopher says. What does Leeson have to say? Like that you're going to give the left a center and I'm going to give the right a center. But I want you to know I don't think about it at all in those terms. When people do good work, you need to talk about it. And you really came across something digging through the data and figuring out where there is. Because what we talk about all the time is rural demise. And I'm about to write expans- extensively on why do we continue to talk about this and not do anything about it? Uh, but in places where things are happening, good things are happening, and things are being written about it, we're going to talk about it on the other side of Texas. So I appreciate you, buddy. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate that. All right. Well, you have a good one. We're going to get into a break. We'll be right back here on the other side of Texas. Cross that old- Couldn't ask for better weather. You were saying with a grin to the sound of hailstones hitting ten. It's loud enough, you gotta yell now. The whole thing hits me like a song. A pretty one won't last long. Good interview there with Christopher Collins. About to get in with our friend Travis Tolley of Mullen Horton Brown, but a couple of I said whenever I began the program, I've been under the weather. I'm playing through the pain. A couple of comments that I wish I'd have taken Christopher Collins on. Uh, one is uh, any avid listener of this program knows that I don't make a lot of excuses for Ted Cruz and the like. I don't think that, to be fair, I don't think that they're any immigrant I think that they're any illegal alien. And that's what they're trying to offset. Now, to Collins's point, there are a lot of illegals here, so what do you do now? And that's a lot of question that is coming from the dairy industry and some other agricultural sectors, and those need to be addressed. But I did not take them on there, and uh, in hindsight, wish I would have uh, not to take a knock at Christopher Collins, but for clarification on the issue, I'm sure he would have been amicable and engaged it. So I hope you enjoyed that. Be up on the podcast after the program in studio. Now we have Travis Tolley of Mullen Horde and Brown. And Travis, I want to welcome you out to the program. Thanks for coming out. I think you've got something that a lot of folks my age need to hear. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? Uh, rolling along like we do, raving on here. We're at the studios where Buddy Holly became famous, right here. All right, well, that's yeah. pretty interesting. Yeah, he had the Sunday parties, historical <laughs> marker here. Yeah, things hadn't changed a lot here since he was here, Travis. Well, 
I guess not. You know, that's a kind. I, I threw the bait out, and you didn't take it. I appreciate that. <laughs> at least the, the station owner will. So, Travis, tell us a little bit about. I don't bring people out here unless they're of intrigue to the audience. Um, tell us about what you do, and uh, we'll get into it from there. Well, I'm an attorney at Mullen, Horton, Brown, and uh, most of my practice is devoted to estate planning and probate. I do other other things as well, but I would say probably more than 50% of it's devoted to estate planning and probate. So break down for listeners what probate might mean. Okay, so probate is, in, in, in short, it's really the process where we take property that is owned by someone that has passed away, and we distribute it to the beneficiaries of that deceased person's estate. And that really is the primary objective of probate. There's other things that, uh, you know, happen in probate as well, but that's really the primary objective of it. Yeah. And that assumes the first part of what you said, you work with wills. Right. In the state planning. Right. So, you know, um, you can, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, I, I don't I don't need a will because I don't have an estate. Well, that's not necessarily true. I mean, everyone that has property has an estate. And so even if you're middle class, lower class, whatever, wherever you kind of fall, you do have property. And whenever you pass away, if you have a will, you can direct where that property goes. And by property, we mean, I mean, lots of people just think about it in real estate terms. Right. That I've got this house or I've got this building commercial but you're talking about real property and personal property talk about those so so real property is like you would think it's real estate it's land minerals things like that uh personal property is everything else okay and that that's not just things laying around the house that you that you have in your home it's it's cash it's your car it's business interests it's you know your ira whatever that's all more or less designated as personal property okay and so, whenever you do will and estate planning, you're designating heirs for all those different types of property. Right. So that's the first. That's the first thing I, I ask people once I get their general information down is, you know, one, what kind of property do you have? So I have an idea of what I'm working with with their estate. And then second, where you want your property to go. And 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 so that's the first. That's the first thing with a will is we need to know where you want your property to go once you pass away. Um, the second thing I ask them is who they want their executor to be. And so one other good thing about a will that, you know, if you, it's a, you get to choose who you want this person to be that handles your affairs whenever you pass away. And that person you name in your will is an executor. And so if you die without a will, you don't, obviously you can't choose who that person is. You're deceased. And so your heirs are the ones that choose who that person is. And it's up to their discretion at that point. Right. Well, and that's, it. you know, the best case scenario, if you die without a will, is you get all of the heirs of this person's estate to agree to one person serving. But you If know, you can do that. If you can do that. Other than that, it generally gets down to people competing as, well, I have a prior right to serve because I am closer related or I have a prior right to serve because I'm in the statute. I, I have a higher right. And then that leads to bitterness and, and things like that. So, you know, that's you know, whenever I'm preparing someone's will, I generally eliminate some of that by saying, okay, let's just name one person. You get to be the person that decides that, and that person's in the driver's seat going forward whenever we probate your will. Yeah, I think every family has this. I mean, to me, I can think about in our family, someone died, and there are people who are still not speaking because of a painting done by a relative because it was never never 
help me with the word executed executed the way it should have been or there wasn't somebody where it was clearly stated this property goes to this person right. and this is 30 years later family members right who go and spit in vials on ancestry dna and they are clearly you know first cousins but never speak or maybe even siblings and don't speak Right, we can't eliminate all family problems by having a will, but it certainly does eliminate some of them. You know what you should do is you should do your best and then bring them on the show, and we'll I'll go Phil Donahue on the thing, and, <laughs> and we'll get the whole thing straightened out. Yeah, yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> okay, that's your legal disclaimer, but go ahead. <laughs> but, you know, that's one problem that comes up when someone dies without a will is who's going to be the person that actually handles the probate and who's the one that actually handles the administration, who's the one that's taking the property of the deceased person, paying their final debts and expenses, and then distributing the property. And so, you know, if you name somebody, like I said before, that person's in the driver's seat going forward if they want to serve, we can probate your will. And it's relatively easy in Texas to probate a will. I think one misconception a lot of people have that I speak to uh, that I don't have wills think, you know, I, I want to avoid probate. Probate's a bad thing, and I don't want to probate anything. I want, you know, a living trust or some of the thing that they heard on the Internet or on TV that I, I need this. Well, that's not necessarily true. Generally, we can administer an estate through probate relatively easy. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a will, you know, not only do we get to designate where your property goes and who's the one that actually gets it done, we can do it relatively cheaply compared to if you die without a will. And so that's kind of, I think, the third major benefit is the cost of it. You know, whenever you die without a will, as I mentioned before, the state of Texas has a statute that determines where your property goes. And and so it's not what you would think. A lot of people think, well, I, I'm married, all my property just goes to my wife. That's not necessarily true. There, there are multiple different things that determine where that property goes, how it's, what it, whether it's real property or personal property, whether it's community or separate property. And I won't go into the specifics of those because that might take a while. But when, once you've determined what the property is and how the family is set up, then at that point you can determine who gets what interest. And it's not generally uh, a simple thing. Yeah, but Travis, you say if you don't have the time, and you wouldn't have the time to go through joint tenancy, tenancy in common, all these. I just passed my real estate exam first try. Thank you. Uh, But you wouldn't have the time to go through all that. But it makes the case that people should have the time to come in and do a will to spare all of this. You know, our largest listening demographic is between 35 and 45 years old on the Mm -hmm. program do you have any quantifiable data that shows how many people in that age group have wills and don't have wills i I don't have any quantifiable data on 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 that i will tell you that i would be willing to bet that more than half of them do not have a will probably probably 75 percent of them do not have wills or any sort of estate 75 yeah hmm now, again, I don't have any actual data to support that, but most people don't have wills. My boss always tells me, he goes, you know, he always tells this to the people that come in, that most attorneys, he had heard at one point, most attorneys that know this stuff or should know it, they don't have wills. And so if you have a group of people that went to school and learned this stuff and they don't have an estate planning uh, portfolio put in place, then certainly people that didn't go to law school and learned about it, they may not have it either. Yeah. So, but part of what you do as well is... Uh, putting forward power of attorney if something should happen to you power of attorney over your finances but also and that's part of the will right right so power of attorney over finances power of attorney 
over uh, health care and health situation. The easiest way to kind of, that I always explain to my clients when I sit down with them is, you know, your estate planning is more or less in two parts. You have documents that govern your estate while after you're deceased, and you also have documents that govern your estate while you're alive. Mm -hmm. And so the will, obviously, is what governs your estate when you're deceased. You can change that as many times as you want as long as you have capacity before you're dead, okay? Uh, While you're alive, you can also execute documents like a financial power of attorney and a medical power of attorney and things like that to govern your estate while you're living. So, for instance, if, you know, you uh, get in a car wreck and uh, you're incapacitated, you can't make medical decisions on behalf, on, on by, you know, for yourself, you can designate who that person is. You know, you can, whether, whether it be your mom or your brother or your sister, maybe you don't trust somebody to do it, you can designate those people. And same thing with your financial power of attorney. If you don't have a financial power of attorney or a medical power of attorney and you become mentally incapacitated, then to govern your affairs generally, we have to set up what's called a guardianship. And that is expensive. And that can be more of a headache than dying without a will. After the fact. Yeah. So give us an example of how much more expensive it can be, Travis. So whenever whenever someone doesn't have a power of attorney and we have to set up a guardianship for them, the person that is incapacitated has to have representation, okay? They have to have an attorney appointed for them, and generally the court will appoint them. Then also the applicant for the guardianship will then have their own attorney. And, of course, as you could probably imagine, when someone is fighting over stuff whenever someone dies, certainly when mom or dad or grandfather or grandmother are incapacitated, everybody everybody lawyers up, and everyone wants to take care of them. And most people have good intentions. But just because they have good intentions doesn't mean they're always going to agree, and so then you're going to have a lot of infighting. Well, you can avoid a lot of those problems if you just have estate planning documents that govern your estate while you're living, such as a financial and medical power of attorney. Yeah. And so you can, without the will thing, and I think that's where we're coming around, we need to track, we need to go to Travis Tolley to get our will stuff done at Mullenhorn Brown as he joins us here. But you might have an estate that's worth $10,000, but you go in and you, while you're up, and you got to spend $8,000 to get that 10000 Right. And every it's just inconsiderate, Travis. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> it's inconsiderate to die without a will. Right. Puts and everybody else in a position where I'm using all these daytime talk shows, but it's a Mari Povich situation where everybody's just going to go make an ass of themselves, and they wouldn't have to do that. I mean, they would do it inevitably. Maybe they had too much whiskey or whatever, but in this circumstance, they that comes to bear because... The, guy, the person died without a will. Yeah, and if and again, if you die without a will, you know, uh, this is what happens, okay? If you die without a will, there's three different ways that we can take property that's in your name and transfer it to who's supposed to get it. There's the really cheap way, and and uh, that's called an a, a affidavit of heirship. And and then, you know, there's there's a small estate affidavit that's the next, I guess, most expensive or, or the, next, the next step. And then you have the full-blown... Um, you know, intestate administration, which is declaration of heirship and independent administration. And so intestate means you, you died without a will. Okay, go ahead. And so whenever you die without a will and we have to do the full blown administration, we have to determine who your heirs are. And so to do that, 
uh, it's not just, hey, judge, these are the heirs. We know that these are the people that are supposed to inherit, so we're going to give them the property. No, the best way to do it is we have to have a judge sign off on the fact, more or less, that these people are the true heirs of the estate. And, and those, you do that through? A declaration of heirship. and the Not DNA tests? Well, you certainly can if that's if that becomes something that you need to do. But the, the way it works is you follow your declaration of heirship and you say, judge, this is who we think the heirs are. But to check our homework, let's appoint an attorney ad litem, which is another lawyer that comes in and that is appointed by the judge and checks our homework. They call all the people. So now, now we're just now you're paying expensive. You're paying point. you're paying two lawyers now because you didn't go yeah. get a will. Yeah. And that's just the first step. Okay. Hmm. Okay, Travis. I think that uh, we've got plenty of people scared to death now. Travis Tolley, Mullen Horton Brown. If people want to contact you, tell them how to contact you, and then what they can expect the process to be like as they go through it. Okay, uh, our offices are located at uh, 1500 Broadway, the Wells Fargo building downtown on the 7th floor, but if in, Lubbock. Gen- in here in Lubbock, but you know, generally the the easiest way to reach us is you can call our direct line and it's uh or our main line, it's at 806-765-7491. Uh and my email address is you know, ttolly at mhba.com. And generally the way this works. And you spell tolly how? T-O-L-L-E-Y. Okay. And so generally the way this works is, um, you know, we set up an appointment. I sit down. I walk you through uh, kind of what I do. And I, I ask you questions about your property and your estate and what you have um, and then what you want to do with it. And then toward at the end of that consult, I give you a quote of how much that's going to cost. And if you want us to go ahead and prepare the documents, and at that point you'll be engaged as a client, and uh, I'll prepare the documents, and then you come back in and sign them, and then we're done. Um, and uh, if that's for estate planning. And, and for probate, it's, it's the same thing. I generally meet with the executor, and that's more of a longer meeting because I have a lot more things I need to ask the executor or whoever's named as the executor in the will. Uh, but it's more or less the same type of process. We, yep. we set up an appointment and kind of get an action plan and go from there. Hey, don't be the guy who dies without a will. Go see Travis Tolley, Mullenhorn and Brown. Appreciate you coming out, Travis. Well, thanks for having me, Jay. I appreciate it. Yeah, uh, that was a lot more fun than dying should be. <laughs> well, I'm glad I can make it fun. <laughs> <laughs> Travis Tolley, check him out there, Mullenhorn and Brown. Going to take a quick break, get back in with you. I got a a couple of things I need to riff on, and I'm going to riff on them hard as we close out this edition of the program. How about our friend, um, Big Bad, our friend in Amarillo, Big Bad Jerry Hodge. This is a press release from the Amarillo, from somebody in Amarillo, the Sod Poodle. Yeah, the Amarillo Sod Poodles. That is the name of your, we need to have that music queued up, by the way. Um... Jerry Hodge, just when you didn't think that you could be as cool as Jerry Hodge, do firefrancis.com, pull back $10 million, and then, as I've reported, put it back in to change the tide there at Texas Tech University, a major university in Texas. Jerry Hodge gets even more cooler than you could ever imagine being. The Amarillo Sod Poodles today announced that they have entered 
into a ballpark naming rights partnership, renaming the home of the Sod Poodles Hodge Town. Hodge Town. The brand Hodge Town encapsulates the idea of a common place for the community to gather from all. And here's the the bureaucratic speech: gather from all areas throughout the Texas Panhandle. The new ballpark name recognizes and gives thanks to other side of Texas legend that I'm inferring there, Jerry Hodge, who led the charge in helping bring the professional affiliated baseball team back to the community. The ending of the name ties in the prairie dog roots with town, defined as a colony of burrows connecting to form one large community. Hodge, who was recently named the 2018 Amarillo Globe News Man of the Year, is a family man, pharmacist, businessman, civic leader, philanthropist, and resident of Amarillo for over 60 years, and may I add, overall bad A money money. We approached Jerry with this name because he shares the common interests of positively impacting our community and has proven so over the last 50 years, said Tony Inser, president and general manager of the Amarillo Sod Poodles. This community spearheaded by Jerry had a dream of bringing not just baseball, but professional affiliated baseball back to Amarillo. And now that has been brought to life. There is no way to honor. There's no better way to honor and recognize his hard work to make the dream come true than by including Jerry's name on our home, our new home. So, Jerry, I don't know where you are, and I don't have any alcohol on me, but uh, my voice is cracking because I'm playing through the pain. But I do want to say, wherever you are at happy hour, good job, my friend, good job. Uh, You may think you're cool as Jerry Hodge, but you aren't. Signing off this edition of the program. I want to thank you for listening along with us, Jay West Texas Leeson, for Christopher Collins, and our friend from Mullenhorden Brown, Travis Tolley. Gotta get home, gonna get home. Great family, above average dinner waiting for me. Until next time, Rave On Buddies, Rave On. We'll see you next time right here on the other side of Texas. Shipwreck on the mountain, rubbernecking all the outlaws. It's who we want to be. Belly up and just make it, and two step on the rail.